again. When we last spoke, I knew I was going to be reduced to mere ashes. And I was right. Reduced to smaller pieces, I was eventually thrown on a blaze. There were others. I never knew there had been others. He mumbled as he worked, talking about what a task it was to dispose of us. Talking about how we had all been good for a time, but now had to go. Talking about how happy he was to have known us. Known us? He hadn't known us, he had taken us. Taken what he wanted and created something new. Rid us of our personhood, our humanity. Look at us, we don't even have our clothes. Was this madness? No. We were fooled. We were charmed. We were innocent. He took our lives, and now? He will pay. There are too many of us. Something will give, and when it does, we are all coming back. Like a hot wind on a cold night, swift and unnerving. We will be there on the edges of his vision. We will be there, our screams left to linger in his dreams. We will be there, waiting in the quiet, ready to meet him when his time finally comes. After we died, he kept us. But what he doesn't know is that we never left. We're there all the time, and we don't plan on leaving. We will wait to see his debts repaid. We have nothing but time. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we we would be dead. Welcome to part two of Absolute Monster Dennis Nilsson. If you haven't listened to part one of this harrowing saga, press stop now and go give part one a listen. Or else you'll be very confused. Yeah, this is (laughs) super useless if you haven't listened to part one. You really, really need that. Excitement alert! Our brand new holiday design merch drops in just a couple weeks, yes? Yes. Yes. So keep your eyes out for some awesome new gear. And I just want to plug our fabulous logo artist, Lisa Jean. That's yep. what she goes by, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she drew something so super special. I love it so much. And I can't wait for everyone to see it. Lisa is a Cape May area tattoo artist, by the by. So if you love her work, you can have some on your skin permanently. You can, yes. So shoot us a message for her contact if you are interested. Just wanted to give her a little attention. Yeah, perfect. I'm so excited about it. Oh my God, guys, it's so cool. (laughs) It should be out the week of, um, I'm going to start putting out items the week of Thanksgiving. Excellent. Yeah. So so just don't stop checking that week because it's so cool. (laughs) Next up, please keep those ratings and reviews coming. I'm feeling younger every day. You look great. Thank you. So do you. Thank you. Like 10 years younger. Yes. We're babies. And you can usually, I only can see your eyes, and that's where you can really see age. That's true. And yeah, so much younger. Definitely. That's right. No one knows that we talk to each other like over the top of a little box. (laughs) 
I'll take a picture and put it up so you guys can see our setup. But we have these little soundproofing things that go around our mics so we can't see each other's full faces. No, we're just always creeping over a ledge. We're just sometimes I'll like sneak around. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. I never really thought of that. Um Soon, though, we may be able to reduce our monthly quota of virgin blood. So you guys, like, leave reviews and save lives. Yes, thanks. Just saying. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then this is your first episode. And hi, how are you? Go listen to part one. (laughs) Welcome back. If you have not done so already, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does make a difference. Or, if you are so inclined, you can come support us over on Patreon. And our monthly campfire stories are just about to happen, and we are recording our 30-minute horror stories soon, so if you become a new patron, you're just immediately going to get a lot of fun. It's going to be great. For just a little monthly donation, you can have access to, as I said, our monthly 30-minute horror stories, our Patreon-broadcasted live campfire stories, discounts on our merch, and on-air toast dedicated to you, and much, much more. So come be best fiends with us. Please. All the cool kids are best fiends. Yeah. Link in the show notes. And even the non-cool kids, because we take everyone. They're all cool, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if you feel like you're not cool and you are our patron, you're cool. Absolutely. We give you that gift. Yes. You have it now. (laughs) Yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) Another easy way to support us is to share, share, share. If you like what we're doing... What we are doing, we like what you're doing too. It's fine. (laughs) Tell the world. Share our new episodes or Friday videos or anything fun that we post. Your friends could become fiends and then we can all have fun together. Win-win. Sharing is caring and caring makes us famous. (laughs) (laughs) I want that on a shirt. (laughs) Listen, we bring people with us too. So if you've been helpful this whole time, look forward to reaping the benefits someday. I'm just going to speak that into existence because I we did that before and it worked. Yeah. So. Manifest it. We did manifest something yeah. this week. I fully believe that. Also, in case I haven't said this here, our weekly photo suites have moved exclusively to Instagram. So if you don't follow us there, you got to go over and do that if you want all the gory details and oh, our handle. Oh, I didn't know. I thought I told you that. No. I want I like more Instagram that, followers. That's so great. You have to go to Instagram to get that. Yeah, no, I love it. Awesome. Um, and our handle is at pod. Leslie says it at the end of every show, but I'm going to say it twice. Mm-hmm. Go, go, go and see us over there. Oh, and if you like silly things that come out of our mouths... And awesome promotions for Leslie's soaps and skincare. You can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Holly Would Be Dead. Leslie is at Lou. That's L E W Would Be Dead. And you can talk to us over there too. Mm-hmm. We're everywhere. Everywhere. It's a delight. Keep an eye out for our, also for our holiday live special announcement. We have a meeting about that in the coming week. That one will be free for everyone and feature our dear friend John Radicasa once again. We have a, like a log of big things in store. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. And we can't really give you guys details about it all just yet, but get excited for an amazing collaboration and a super interesting guest. They are coming soon. Wow, I am so busy. I know. You have so much to do. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> but it's all fun. Okay. We're going to go have lunch with John. We're going to be fine. Cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and with that, I think we can get on with the show. When we 
last saw Dennis, he was in police custody telling them exactly how he killed a whole bunch of men and boys and acting like they were idiots for not immediately thinking his actions were rational and well executed. I know. uh, I'm going to be so, so mad. (laughs) Some of his, some of this first part that I'm telling you guys right now is going to be recap because episode one was a whole week ago and we can all use like a little refresh. Yep. Our favorite plumber, Dino Rod himself, Michael Catran, had called the Daily Mirror to report his story. And Professor Bowen at Hornsey Mortuary, our superhero who was able to identify things from single strips of flesh, was racing the clock to reassemble the victims found at Cranley Gardens, that was Dennis's home when he was arrested, in order to positively identify one of them and thus be able to formally charge Dennis with murder. Therefore, keeping him in prison while the investigation of the rest of his crimes continued. Professor Bowen was able to match fingerprints with Paul Sinclair to police files on him and then aligned this part of Dennis's confession with this evidence. Therefore, Dennis was able to be formally charged with murder. And then, after that, all of that red tape has gone through, the police make a formal announcement to the press. Okay. So now it's it's on them. It's not just Dino Rod confessing to the Daily Mirror. Right. <laughs> they say, okay, we have apprehended Dennis Nelson. He has killed Paul Sinclair. We have evidence of it. He's being charged. There are other things going on. And now everybody has it on the front page. But the Daily Mirror, like, still to this day, reserves bragging rights for the story. All right. If you see them talk about it, they say, yeah, it was big news, but, like, we had it first, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. So now the rest of the country had caught up. Suddenly, all eyes were on the horrifying case of serial killer Dennis Nelson. And let's just say he didn't hate the attention. It is a longstanding habit in Scotland that when there is a high-profile criminal being transported from the police station to the prison or the courthouse, they will cover that individual's head with a raincoat while they're outside, you know, going from, like, door to car, car to door, to shield their face from the media. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I talked about this last time. I don't think I did. We talked about it. Dennis declined this courtesy. Mm -hmm. He didn't want his face to be covered. He preferred to be photographed. He said that if they wanted to see him, so be it. Yep. He tries to phrase it as this noble thing, like, well, I've done what I've done. Let them them Mm -hmm. see. Really, he was just like, put me in the paper. (laughs) God. I have a beautiful face. I look like David Tennant. I I look like David Tennant. Take my picture. Listen, if I look like David Tennant, I would tell everyone to take my picture. Absolutely. I would be everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be so about my fame. (sighs) In the following 16 interviews, which we mentioned last time he was interviewed 16 times and it totaled over 30 hours, Dennis would lay out exactly what happened to all of his innocent victims And not exactly why he did what he did, but certainly how Mm -hmm. and what he felt while it was happening. It's very strange. He gives an explanation, but not like an explanation. Right. I know that sounds confusing, but bear with me. Let's keep going. First, Dennis was adamant that he had only decided to kill his victims minutes before the murder happened. Mm Mm-hmm. Every single one was just a date that flipped on a dime, which I absolutely, I, I cannot believe that. You yeah, killed that's hard to believe. seven other dates, and you want me to believe that you had no idea you were going to kill the eighth? That's like saying you know you're allergic to olives, but are also shocked every time they give you a rash. Mm-hmm. No, I do not think so. 
Dennis told the police that he had strangled all of his victims and that most of them had died this way, but several were rendered unconscious by the strangulation and then were subsequently drowned, which checks out with the story we have all heard thus far. Mm -hmm. So basically, this is just him nailing down all the facts. Once a victim had been killed, Dennis would carefully bathe their body and then remove any body hair on their torso and use makeup to hide any blemishes. He's got to make them perfect. Yeah. The ligature marks got to stay, though, because he's a sick fuck who apparently gets off specifically on dead little boys. <sighs> yep. What? How else can you describe that? He doesn't, I mean, as, as they get, like, they rot, he'll use makeup to cover the rot. Mm-hmm. But, like, not really the injuries that he caused. He's right. fine with those. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know? That's the only thing I can really think about. The victim's bodies were then redressed in their socks and underwear. So in both versions that I, like, suspected last week, like, I couldn't I couldn't tell if they had been dressed or if they had been left mm-hmm. naked. It's kind of a little bit of both. They were sort of dressed, but just barely. And socks and underpants, once again, is an extremely juvenile look. It is. Oh. Fucking pedo creep dirtbag monster. Ew. Oh, no, I hate him. When I read how he, like, the ritual he used to get these bodies ready for, you know, hanging out with them for a while, it just, he made them look like such little boys. So screwed up. Mm Mm-hmm. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. After the bodies were prepared, all of their personal effects would be burned in his yard. Except for Martin's stuff. We know that he kept some of Martin's things, but here's the difference. Martin's things were retrieved after. That's right. He had already killed him. He had already preserved him for a while. And then he went to get his stuff from a train station. And this is something that he could be totally removed from. He could just pretend, because he's very good at playing pretend, that those things belonged to him. Or that they belonged to somebody else and he was just picking them up. He didn't have to mentally connect them with Martin, so he could just... Pick them up. And I really think that's why he's the only one he kept stuff from. Okay. I could be wrong, but it seems to connect dots. The intent was for Dennis to completely erase his victim's identity so he could immerse himself in the fantasy. They were just, quote, props to him. (sighs) After the ritual was complete, Dennis would act like these corpses were his boyfriend for a while, talking to them, kissing them, posing them in chairs, and laying them in his bed to sleep. Dennis spoke of how the feeling of power in these moments was immense and how his favorite part was carrying the dead body from location to location when they were limp like a rag doll because at that point he felt completely in power over them. Hate it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I know. It's the weird things that he likes that makes this somehow worse. He's not like, I wanted to rape them. He's like, I wanted to carry their limp, dead body from one location to the next so I could feel like they had surrendered completely. Right. You're so much worse. I mean, all of it's bad, but I don't. (laughs) He Feeling completely in power was always his goal, basically. Mm -hmm. And a lot of time we know that also rape is rage. Not that he's per se a rapist. I guess he kind of is, but it's, it's in a different way. Um, and and odd, oddly enough, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but I know I mentioned it in my What the Friday, as much necrophilia-type acts as he committed, he was never charged for any of those things because it wasn't against the law. That's right, yeah. Specifically, necrophilia and acts like that upon a corpse, they're, they're not mentioned in any of the laws where he lived in Scotland. 
And so he didn't face any consequences for those things. No. The only thing he could be charged for was their deaths. Anything that happened after was just happened. Because they don't go on to discuss, like, charging him with any of Yeah, the, that's not, it's the not mistreatment. against the law nope. at the time. No mistreatment of the corpses were, I mean, I'm sure there are some more laws on that now over there, but in mm-hmm. the early 80s, they had no laws about it. Right. So it was, it was just the isolated killing. I still don't know that there's laws on that in some states. There aren't laws about specifically necrophilia in some states, and I, I list them all in my What the Friday from oh. two weeks ago. But there is, like, gross mismanagement of a corpse or something, and, like... Right. There are laws about messing with dead bodies. Mm-hmm. I don't have them written down. I'm sorry, guys. But I, I list them in that one the Friday. Everybody go watch it, and then share it, <laughs> and then, then we'll be best beans. Um, but, yeah, this is just no laws about messing with a dead body. Right. At all. Which is interesting. <laughs> but, Okay. And you would think that he had sex with his corp dolls, corpse dolls, but he didn't at all, ever. Every single time he did the same thing, he wouldn't have penetrative sex with them. He explained that the, his victims were, quote, too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> you pretentious fuck. They weren't, however, too beautiful or perfect for him to masturbate over or have sex with the space between their thighs. <sighs> It's made it work, you know. And this is also, this is just in his confession because they can't prove Mm-mm. what he did because everything no. was, like, torn apart. Yeah, they didn't find any bodies. So this is enough. just him saying, like, we just have to go on what he said he did. We do. We have absolutely no proof otherwise. It's so weird. I, I don't necessarily think he lied, though. What a weird thing to do. I don't right. know that you would lie about it. Right. No, I definitely don't think he's lying, but I always wonder if he, like, Maybe slipped Cheat. it in there real yeah. quick. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Oh, God. We already have discussed what Dennis did with the bodies, threw them under the floorboards, dissected them, boiled the heads, burned parts in a fire, flushing their slushy remains down the toilet, the whole gross enchilada. When questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, Dennis replied, quote, I wish I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. Oh, fuck you. This is him actively stating that his happiness is more important than those men's lives. Yep. No. No, thank you. Get a bicycle. Learn to knit. Taxidermy squirrels. Your fucking thrills are not important. (laughs) Dennis also liked to claim that he did not like the act of killing. Like, he didn't want to kill these men. He didn't like that part. But rather, quote, worshipped the art and the act of death. Because, oh my God, being a pretentious cunt is what he did best. Yep. Act and the art. Oh God, kindly drown in a river of zombies who pull out your guts on your way to the bottom. Which is, in my imagination, the worst way to go. Imagine you're sinking and they're all just pulling you down and pulling out your intestines, but you're conscious. That's the worst way to die. That's a visual. I know. That's what I do. That's how I want Dennis Nilsson to have gone. It was still pretty bad, but not that bad. (laughs) We'll get to it. Moving on. On February 11th, 1983, Dennis was officially charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair and transferred to Brixton Prison to be held on remand until his trial. Dennis did not see his situation super clearly, though. 
even though he had just confessed to a lot of extraordinarily heinous crimes and had one positive body identification going against him, Dennis still thought this meant that he was innocent until proven guilty. (laughs) Come on, man. They just proved you were guilty. (laughs) How could he think that? I have no idea. That always gets to me because, like, it feels to me that it's very obvious he wasn't innocent, but okay. Right. I think he just felt like he had till the trial. Yeah. I also think that sometimes he feels that what he says is so convincing that just the way he wants things to go is how they're going to go. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm still technically innocent even though I said all those things because I think that's how this is going to go. I'm sorry, friend. No, that's not how anything goes. Because of this belief, Dennis tried to refuse to wear a prison uniform while awaiting trial. First of all, he tried to not go to prison. He didn't want to go there at all. But they were like, no, I'm sorry, you have to go. And then they're just going to take you there. (laughs) You can't say, no, thank you. I'll wait at my house. (laughs) What? Where are you going to go? Are you going to go to that house, pull corpses and stuff? No, you're done, dude. He's like, yeah, that's where I lived. I got to go back home. (laughs) I have work to do. No. So obviously they drug him off to prison, and then he thought it was just extremely dehumanizing that he had to wear a prison uniform. He he didn't want to do it. He said, while having a fit, that he would stay completely naked if he wasn't allowed to wear his own clothing. Well, someone's not getting candy after dinner. (laughs) And the baller British police officer said, okay, fine, you can't leave your cell then. Good. You could be as naked as you want. You got to stay by yourself. <laughs> I love the Brits. I know. I love them so much. They're like, we're just not going to deal with this. Mm-hmm. We're just going to lock the door and walk away. <laughs> Next, he decided to protest his conditions by throwing the contents of his little, like, toilet prison. They call it a chamber pot, which is so old-timey, and this mm-hmm. was the 80s, but it's just like a little commode. So he took that and, like, threw the contents of it at the prison guards. So gross. It's super disgusting. And of course, that didn't go well either. The guards had him immediately charged with assaulting officers, and Dennis was thrown into solitary confinement for 56 days. There, he could be free to take off all his clothes and throw shit like the tantruming toddler he was. (laughs) No one would be bothered. (laughs) They're the best parents. They are. They really are. They're really killing it. They didn't give in to any of his bullshit. They're just like, fine, now you're by yourself forever. I would love if they wrote like a parenting guide. (laughs) You always want to apply, like, prison rules to schools. <laughs> what was it? Oh, yeah, when I was when we were talking about the iron gag. And you're like, what if they put those in schools? <laughs> what if parents did this? I'm just – I went to a Catholic school. We were very strict. You just want to get the kids to behave. I, you know, I felt like I was kept in line. Just so. follow the rules. And I feel like a better person for it. Yeah, just don't throw your own shit and you won't be in solitary confinement. Yeah, we're not monkeys. That is a reasonable request. (laughs) The only time Dennis did not behave like a spoiled infant, in fact, was when he was in the police station to be interviewed. And you brought that to my attention. He liked being interviewed. Mm -hmm. That made him feel important. He got Cokes and stuff. Ooh, Cokes! (laughs) What a treat. I know. They usually get, like, cigarettes and whatever they want. Well, because then you're more inclined to talk. Absolutely. He was being treated very nicely there, which they hated doing, but they were getting their information. I know. What a, like, 
shit eating type job mm-hmm. where you have to be nice to this horrible this person you know is horrible because the results are extremely useful and, right. and good thing they did what they did. But God, can you imagine being that person? No, I can't. Being like the interrogator <laughs> that sits there and goes, Listen, I know how hard it is to kill fifteen men. Oh, it's okay, man. We're on the same team. Yeah, just let it out. No, we are not. <laughs> I can't. This is why I can't do that kind of thing. I would be so mad all the time and I would never be able to do it. I feel like my this is where my massage therapy training comes into hand because oh, yeah. I would always have to speak very soothingly to people, like no matter what I was talking about. Even when they came all over the dressing room? No. <laughs> now, I, I know you had to relieve yourself, but we're going to have to relieve you. Goodbye. <laughs> We're going to charge you for all those towels. Have a great day. Yes, thank you. We'll just put it to your room tab. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. That's right, because you worked in a hotel, so you could do that. Yeah. Perfect. That's such a soothing (laughs) voice. People are going to request you read things now in that voice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On May 26th, Dennis was committed to stand trial at the Old Bailey on five counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder, with a sixth murder charge added on at a later date. Throughout this committal hearing, Dennis was um, was talking with a solicitor, which is a, a British lawyer, named Ronald Moss. And Ronald Moss had a super fun time with Dennis. What Dennis really wanted was to represent himself, like Ted Bundy did, because narcissists think that they are experts at everything. But he complained that he wasn't provided enough money to do so, which was awfully bold given he told them he had kept bodies under the floor in his apartment. (laughs) What did he need money for? I guess law books and stuff. Like, he doesn't know anything about law. Right. If he was to represent himself, I don't know. What what other kind of fees? But he just said, like, they weren't providing him with the finances to represent himself, and he was furious. Hmm. Because they would provide him a lawyer, or maybe he wanted to get paid. I don't know. They would technically provide him a lawyer. Right. Like a public defender over here. Right. He then fired and rehired Ronald Moss twice. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> I know. He really had a terrible time. He kept being like, you're fired. I'm going to rep- my- represent myself. Well, I can't. You're hired. You're fired. I'm going to represent myself. <laughs> so that happened twice. It's super fun. Now, this guy, Moss, had spoken to Dennis and with Dennis's full consent before the final firing, was ready to enter a guilty plea on his behalf. Mm-hmm. That's what they worked out. And really, that makes perfect logical sense because he had confessed to everything calmly and rationally, like someone who knew exactly what they were doing at the time of the murders. Right. So if I were his lawyer, I would have gone full Ronald Moss and been like, dude, you got to confess and mm-hmm. hope that you can make some kind of deal. And that's it. You have to plead plead guilty. But in the meanwhile, Dennis had been speaking to somebody else. And five weeks before the trial, Dennis fired Ronald Moss. Oh, no, he fired him for the third time after the two hirings and firings. (laughs) And this time he hired a man named, okay, so it's written Ralph, but in Britain, a lot of times it's Rafe. So it's one of the two. Rafe Heems who told Dennis to plead not guilty by reason of, quote, diminished responsibility. Diminished responsibility is something that is less kindly but more frequently known as an insanity defense. Right. It's not nice to call people insane, but that's how we recognize it. Dennis would try to backpedal into saying that he may have killed a bunch of men and done horrible, disgusting things to their corpses, but at the time, 
He didn't know he was wrong. Whoops. You know, kind of like he just hadn't admitted to knowing he was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. The cops picked him up and he was like, take me to the police station so I can tell you about murders. Right. And then he goes back and says, I didn't know those murders were bad that I did. What? It's more specific than that, but it just, Mm -hmm. it, it. It just blows my mind that he could try and put himself in this place. And it shows you how important he thinks he is. Yet again, that he's like, if I say it, that's just what's true. Right. I I mean, because I wonder what um, – um, do you go into that more deeply or anything? Okay. Yeah. No, they, they try to say that – I talk about what the psychiatrists say yeah. about him. And they try to say that he had blackouts. Yeah. That's that what before it- and after, he was with it. But during, he mm-hmm. was completely – He would like snap. And, yeah. Yeah. Which is a very convenient combination of mental issues. Yeah. That doesn't seem entirely real to me, but we'll, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Then this method of defense, p- pleading um, that you, you can't be responsible for your crimes, is notoriously tricky. We have talked about what it means to be proven innocent by means of diminished mental responsibility in the United States, and it's pretty similar in the U.K., You just have to prove that when you committed the crime, if you're the person on trial, that you didn't know what you were doing was wrong. Mm -hmm. Which sounds easy enough, but it almost certainly isn't. For those exact same reasons I just stated. Like, if you confess to a crime, you almost always say somewhere that you realized you had committed a crime. Right. But why don't you, Leslie, give us a little lesson on pleading insanity in the UK so we can have a little more knowledge. So like you said, it's... it's not easy to be acquitted for reasons of insanity. Right. Um, they, most cases, I think it's almost like 1% of cases even get to that point and then even less than out of those 1% that can plead insanity, like even yeah. a smaller amount are actually acquitted by the end of it. Yeah, it never works. I, I Even people who maybe it should work on, it doesn't usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's I, just really hard to prove, and it's very um, it's it's so vague too. Yeah. That's the hard part. People have, I mean, it's going to change throughout centuries. Yeah, <laughs> and it's constantly change. I mean, it could change next week, and then change the week after because of just the murderer that they have on trial that week that they want to prove is not insane to, or is insane. It needs or, to be one thing. Yeah, we it's need, really hard. We need one thing, and it's yeah. not one thing. So, um, some history on the insanity defense in the UK specifically. Yes, that's where Um, we are. The insanity defense in Anglo-American law dates back to 1581, where the courts simply saw they would need to distinguish between those who understood the difference between good and evil and those who did not. Quote, If a madman or a natural fool or a lunatic in the time of his lunacy do kill a man, this is no felonious act, for they cannot be said to have any understanding will. End quote. Got it. And these, quote-unquote, lunatics would be found not guilty. So by the 18th century, um, well, so, okay, so that was very simplistic, and it was more on, like, a biblical source of just good versus evil and if you couldn't decide like if you just didn't have any wits about you. I mean if you 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 truly did not have your mental faculties and didn't know I mean like maybe it needs to still be that simple. 
it's this is very simple, but then it's still so vague because yeah. it could just people can pull it and yeah, you know. By the 18th century, the British elaborated the distinction by calling it the wild beast test. Oh. Basically, that someone who was so insane they did not understand the ramifications of their actions, quote, no more than an infant, a brute, or a wild beast, end quote, would not be held responsible for his crimes. This helped people a little more, um, helped be a little bit more clear, but it's still pretty vague and the person no matter the crime a simple robbery to a murder are free of responsibility okay uh then in 1843 daniel m naughton or monoton it's like m apostrophe naughton monoton he was a scottish woodcutter he attempted to murder the prime minister no in some sources i also read that he had also planned to kill the pope i'm not sure Uh, why not get them all Instead, though, he shot and killed the secretary to the prime minister and was stopped before he could shoot the prime minister. So they were, like, in a carriage together, okay. and um, I think Queen Victoria was with them as well, so there was extra guards on duty. <laughs> they were like, leave the queen alone. That's fine. Yeah. No, she wasn't. She, oh, was she an wasn't in the thing? Yeah. Okay. Well, so because they he shot and killed the secretary of the prime minister, right. and then they got him before he could do any more harm. Gotcha. He believed that the government was after him and the prime minister was specifically trying to persecute him. Which was not happening, I assume. No, no he had no, like, nobody cared about him. Nobody mm-hmm. knew, yeah, knew him. That's... <laughs> he was just the Scottish woodcutter. <laughs> Every presidential assassin is like that. They're uh-huh. like, they're going to get me. They're, yeah, not they're getting... after me. He got, like, super paranoid. Um, it was, yeah. And, uh, and he had to kill this guy. And then he would be free- And nobody would be out to hurt him anymore. Yeah, obviously. So during the trial, the defense counsel had medical experts testify that Monoton was insane. The jury found him not guilty by reason of insanity. This meant a crazed murderer would go to a psychiatric hospital instead of prison. Okay. Uh, This trial set up a precedent for convicting the criminally insane. So um, before that, it was still, they were still doing kind of that wild beast theory, just like. Such a weird. I know. Okay. I know. Um, and then this one, because they had brought in um, some medical experts, like actual psychologists, there was like nine or 10 of them on the stand that all agreed that he had something wrong with him, like he, a breakdown or something that caused him. If he didn't have this mental disability or behavior, mm-hmm. he would have this wouldn't have happened. The hmm. crime only happened because of his... Whatever. Whatever was going, was on. going on. Years later, Queen Victoria was still pretty pissed about this ruling because well, yeah. this is always the case when you... If somebody does get acquitted for these crimes based on insanity, everybody feels like they're not getting their actual punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, now, mind you, Monoton um, did go to uh, an English insane asylum and he was there the rest of his life. So he did kind of still have to go to prison, but people didn't see it that way. But if they saw the, yeah, the still, insane asylums, they'd be like, oh. great. <laughs> um, but I guess there is always that chance that they could be healed and get out. I don't know specifically his, like, how long he was sentenced for. If that, if he, well, he wasn't sentenced. He was just acquitted. Yeah. So he could have gotten better and then left. Um, But anyway, years later, Queen Victoria was still pissed about the ruling. She believed more crimes will occur with people claiming insanity and getting off easy because they're just like, they can, you know, just get acquitted and 
go to the hospital for a little bit and then be yeah. better. Um, and this is still, people still say this today. Like, they still get upset about stuff like this. They don't like usually this. get acquitted, though. They usually have to just be in the hospital forever. Well, now they're, yeah, because they're still, like, the criminally insane. So they're still almost sentenced yeah. to things. Mm-hmm. Um so they decided to make the monoton rule a little bit more clear because she wanted to reopen the case and send him to prison. And they did look at it because she's the queen. But they right, were like, you have to. yeah, they were like, well, all the psychologists still believe that he has a problem. And we also felt that he did. We're keeping the ruling, but let's make this a little bit more clear. And that's where they established the uh, monoton rule. Stating to establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that at the time of committing the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know that what he was doing was wrong. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's that kind similar. of what we have now. Right. Right. So only if the person knows what they are doing and or knows that the act is wrong can they be found sane. And this was the standard for the next hundred years. And we still, America still pretty much goes off of this. Well, that now. case, the person I was thinking of is is a lot like in America, um, Charles Gateau, mm-hmm. who assassinated President Garfield. And they, after his autopsy, found out that he probably had neurosyphilis. Okay. Because he labored under the assumption that like, he's like, I helped get him elected. I'm very important. And he's not recognizing this, so I have to kill him. Right, <laughs> right. The same kind of like weird bullshit happened, mm-hmm. um, but he was a, he was killed. Charles Cateau was executed. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. Okay. So under the current law now in the UK, um, there's uh, the law changed very slightly here and there. Some people wanted it a little bit more strict because, again, they felt like it shouldn't be that easy to acquit somebody. They shouldn't be um, even if they're found mentally disabled or just something something's going on even just at the time they still feel like they need to own up to their punishment Um, okay currently now there are two applications of the insanity defense where it is claimed that the defendant was insane at the time that he committed the crime and where it is claimed that he was insane at the time of the trial and thus unable to effectively defend himself Okay, so we already know what it means to be insane during the crime itself. Right. Right. So insanity at the time of the trial is a little bit different. If a defendant at the time of trial claims he is insane, this hinges on whether or not he is able to understand the charge, the difference between guilty or not guilty, and is able to instruct his lawyers. If he is unable to do these things, he is found unfit to plead under Section 4 of the Criminal Procedures Act of 1964. Hmm. Um, so in that situation, the judge has wide discretion as to what to do with the defendant, except in cases of murder where he must be detained in a hospital. Right. Murder is like the the standard. <laughs> yeah. So there have, again, been multiple attempts to revise the monoton rule over the years. But other than like a slight few adjustments, it all is basically the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's like very rare to actually have somebody be acquitted for it's so it like never works we did one case where it did work and mm-hmm. i don't remember who it was right now but i remember being like i cannot believe that this actually came to pass because it so rarely does right a lot of people try it so mm-hmm. many people try it oh ed gein ed gein was deemed 
insane at the time of his sentencing. He spent his time in a hospital. Right. I yeah. mean, he was pretty. I it's <laughs> it's hard because yes, I want to believe that this person has a problem. Of course. To do that, but then there is a level of consciousness consciousness. Right. You know. I think oh, it's so difficult because there's also I don't think it can be pinned on just diagnosing them with a mental illness because there are millions of people who are have schizophrenia and never, ever do any harm to anybody. Well, yeah, and that's what a lot of, um, you know, later on in even like the 50s and mm-hmm. and today, that is usually the argument with some psychologists and doctors. Um, yeah, it doesn't make they, you kill people. Yeah. The best you can, I think the best, like – crutch not crutch but the best thing you could lean on to make that apply to you to to say like I I wasn't didn't have my faculties at the time is if you were like a hallucinator and you were in a hallucination and you truly didn't know what was real and what wasn't right which does happen to people mm-hmm. there are people who have killed killed people they know having no idea what was going on at the right. time those people, mm-hmm. they deserve that defense. Or sleepwalkers. I that drives me nuts. That's so that happens. I know where people will just like don't know what they're doing and they kill their spouse or their kids. Oh, can you imagine? That's horrible. I never it makes me never want to sleep again when I read about that shit. I know. But those people deserve that defense. the The person who say finds out who killed their child or something and then goes blind with rage and kills that person. Mm-hmm. That's also a fine line. You lost your mind and did something nuts. Yeah. Or were you just angry and you knew what you were doing? But I think in cases like this where you're like, we have someone who who is clearly like a conscious serial killer, I don't even think if you diagnose them as having mental illness that you can say, well, it was that it, that's why. That's not why. Right, because I think that's where it's not fair to people with the same diagnosis as them and don't do And it's going to give them the worst stigma. Like people who have schizophrenia are in a category of people who for years and years have been like horrible murderers Mm -hmm. because it's a disease that still psychiatrists don't super understand. So a lot of times they'd be like, well, I'm going to make you this and everyone's going to go, oh, that's the worst one and then lock you away forever. And that makes it easier. Right. It was just something they like to throw on people to help explain them to the rest of the world. So the rest of the world go, oh, well, you know, he had that thing. So that's why this happened. And now I feel better. Yeah. And it's not always true. And it isn't always the reason. That's that's all I have. (laughs) That's good, though. And that's our our tirade on please don't stigmatize people with mental illness because it does not mean they're going to do something awful. That's not a thing. The goal of Dennis's trial then was not to prove whether or not he was guilty of murder. He's obviously already determined that, but rather to determine whether or not he was of sound mind at the moment when he committed those murders. Because as you said, it's down to the moment when the incident occurs, not before, Mm -hmm. not after, during. Right. In the UK, uh, they don't have degrees of murder. So this would be the difference probably between convicting him of murder and manslaughter. Mm Mm-hmm. And manslaughter obviously carries a much lighter sentence most of the time. Right. So he's going to want to go for that manslaughter ruling. Obviously, the prosecution argued that Dennis was operating with full mental acuity when he committed these crimes, as is evident by the fact that they were completely premeditated. Not only that, but Dennis knew when he was discovered that he was going to be taken to jail. He knew that the things he had done were wrong because he said as much. 
Also, if he was unaware that his actions were wrong, why go to such extreme lengths to conceal the crimes after the fact? That's another thing. When people say that they, like, didn't know what they were doing and yet they go, they hide bodies, if you knew enough to hide a body, you you knew what you were doing. Yeah, I know. And he goes to such great lengths with He really that. does. If you don't believe that you've done anything wrong and you go so far as to indiscriminately murder 15 men, then wouldn't you just dump their bodies out in the open when you're done? Like, you can't be bothered. You don't think it's wrong. Right. He's finished. Even if he hid them under the floorboards and fucked around with them with eight, for eight months afterwards, you'd just put them in the trash or something. You'd just be like, well, okay. Well, they're even almost saying that it's just when he kills them. Right. And even, then it's almost like, and then afterwards, he's just, like, I hanging guess. out with them. Oh, they try to do this very specific momentary mm-hmm. loss of mind. Um, but, like, I always come back to Richard Trenton Tace as my touchstone, and I really do believe he was given a, the wrong deal. I think he should have been put in a hospital, and I'll, mm-hmm. I will die on that hill. But he left the bodies right there because he truly didn't know what he was doing. Right. He went in and killed these people and did awful, awful things to them and just walked out of their house into society, still covered in their viscera. And he wasn't deemed legally irresponsible. He would have had that wild beast. He would have. 100% he would have. Mm -hmm. Because he was not with it. He did not have his Mm -hmm. faculties. But Dennis Nelson walked in and calmly talked about everything he had done. Right. Very different. And it seems preposterous to me that Dennis thought he was going to get away with this. And yet, here we are. The defense leaned heavily on Dennis's claim that, as we just discussed, at the precise moment of the act of murder, and this is a quotation, quote, at the precise moment of the act of murder, I believe I am right in doing the act. They weren't arguing that he didn't realize after the fact that it was wrong, just that every killing was a date that had gone wrong and Dennis just snapped. He apparently went into some sort of blackout where you remember everything you do and can, and can recount it with artful clarity years later, but don't know what's happening in that moment. Mm-hmm. How are you going to talk about what you did in graphic detail if you were in some sort of psychotic blackout when you did it? Right, he remembers so much. So very, he remembers every little twitch and grimace. Mm-hmm. He remembers everything. Maybe not their names, but... No, not their <laughs> names, but exactly the other stuff. So to counteract this argument, Prosecutor Alan Green added, quote, The Crown says that even if there was mental abnormality, that was not sufficient to diminish substantially his response for these killings. And you're goddamn right, Alan Green. The trial basically hinged upon the testimony of three witnesses and psychiatrists on both sides. And yes witnesses, because there was not one, not two, but three men who came forward and confessed to being attacked by Dennis after he'd been arrested. But they managed to get away with their lives, because success is a numbers game and you can't win them all. Hmm. Dennis later said that there were as many as five more men who were able to escape, but wherever those men were, they chose to keep their encounters private. Hmm. I hate that more escaped and they just, like, couldn't, they just had to be done. I know. I mean, I don't blame them. They're Who knows what kind of life they led after that. The unfortunate fact of the matter is that these men were discredited time and time again simply because they were gay. And while two out of three of the men went on to report the incident to the police, they all knew that in taking legal action, they were outing themselves. Something then, in that place and time, could have completely ostracized them from their family and community and possibly even cost them their jobs. Mm -hmm. The first of these men to testify was Douglas Stewart. 
Douglas testified that in November of 1980, he had gone home with Dennis, and after a while, he had fallen asleep in a chair only to wake up with his ankles tied to that chair, and Dennis strangling him with a tie, pressing a knee into Douglas's chest for leverage. Douglas, however, was strong and lucid enough to empower, to overpower Dennis. He didn't empower him. He wasn't like, thank you, kill me. <laughs> You're doing great. Well done. Yeah, no, he overpowered him. And once he had, Dennis stood up and shouted, quote, take my money, which seems super weird and irrational and would then prove his insanity defense, except for one thing. Hmm. Dennis lived in an apartment building where there were other tenants. Tenants. Most of them would have been home at that hour. It was late at night and able to hear the violent struggle that had just occurred. Shouting, take my money, would make it seem like either a robbery or another kind of event where Dennis himself was the victim. Right. Douglas went straight from Dennis's flat to the police station where he made a report. Dennis was even brought in for questioning, but of course he gave a very different description of the events that occurred. Noting this, and the fact that the men involved were gay, police wrote it all off as a lover's quarrel and did not investigate it any farther. Just like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yep. If you were gay, the cops just didn't care. You could take care of your own problems. Disgusting. While Douglas had very compelling testimony backed by actual police reports, the filthy defense went in against him, saying that the inconsistencies in his and Dennis's recountings of the story and minor inconsistencies in Douglas's testimony were proof that he had been too drunk on the night in question to grasp what had actually happened. In reality, as we have explained before, minor inconsistencies in recounting a story are more often than not signs of telling the truth and not the exact opposite. Lies are planned and therefore flawless. The truth just kind of exists in a floating natural state. Right. Lastly, because Douglas had previously sold his story to the press, the defense claimed that his memory was selective in a way that maligned Dennis for his own financial gain and celebrity. That last fact was enough to have his testimony seriously damaged in the eyes of the jury. I know, so unfortunate. It's awful. I get it. He probably needed the money too. He probably did. And once that it was like a big deal, he was like, "Oh man, I could, I could tell these people some mm-hmm. stuff." I don't judge him for it. Second, a man named Paul Nobbs took the stand. At the time of his assault, Paul was a student at a local university. He had a family and friends, and was well known in his community. A man who would have certainly been missed, should he have gone missing. Paul had gone home with Dennis one night with the intention of drinking and having sex, so it got right to the point. And nobody knew Paul was gay, so he was doing this kind of undercover of darkness. The next morning, Paul woke up with a pounding headache, and when he staggered to the bathroom, he noticed in the mirror that his face was beet red and his eyes were totally bloodshot. Dennis exclaimed, seeing him look at himself surprised, he said, God, you look bloody awful, and then told Paul to see a doctor. Remember how good he is at playing pretend? Mm -hmm. Paul never reported his attack for fear of outing himself. The prosecution saw this attack as evidence that Dennis could control himself and refrain from murdering his companions. But the defense said it demonstrated that Dennis's inability to control himself and it was evidence that he wasn't choosing his victims intentionally because this one wasn't a homeless youth who no one would ever come for. 
So they said, oh, see, he doesn't know what he was doing. He just picked anybody. And then, like, he realized what was happening and stopped. Whereas the prosecution were like, no, no, no. His brain said someone's going to look for this guy, and that's why he stopped. The defense said that, right? Or no, the prosecution. The prosecution. Because right. they said, no, he right. had his mental faculties because he realized he was killing a guy right. that people would come look for. Right. Ugh, so it's, it's, it's awful how in court the exact same fact can work for both sides. Mm-hmm. Now, all that seems rather like this part of the trial is coming out as a wash. Like, there's sides that are, like, really shocking, and then they're able to knock them down. And that's kind of true. But then the third witness, Carl Stotter, came far forward to testify. <sighs> Carl makes me so sad. Carl did not want to revisit the incident. He didn't want to talk about it after it happened. He didn't want to talk about it years later as he was battling alcoholism and depression. And he didn't want to talk about it on the stand in front of a group of people he didn't know. But he did it. Carl Stotter was a hero. And we spoke about him in part one. His attack was by far the most brutal of all the survivors. Carl was a handsome young man. He was outgoing and popular and confident enough at the time to come out to his parents at just 15 years old, which is huge because this would have been the mid-70s. Right. So that's a very big deal. For the most part, Carl was supported by his family. He had a pretty good thing going on. He lived in North London and worked as a drag performer. He didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. None of them did at the time, but he wasn't in like, to the best of my knowledge, and you may have a different opinion, but he wasn't in the the extreme dire straits that some of the other guys were. He wasn't like doing good, but he wasn't homeless. Right. Carl met Dennis in 1982 when he was 21 years old. Carl didn't have much money, so when Dennis asked Carl to come home with him, offering him his company, but also a place to sleep and a hot meal, Carl was quick to accept. The pair went back to Dennis's house where they would drink heavily. And the following three days, because he was there for three days, would change Carl's life forever. On the second night after heavy drinking, Carl fell asleep in a sleeping bag and awoke to find Dennis whispering, stay still, in his ear. Yep. While tightening the sleeping bag around his neck. Eventually, Carl passed out, and after that, Dennis drags him into the bathroom where he began to drown him in the bathtub. But halfway through the experience, something came over Dennis, and he decided he was going to let Carl live. No explanation as to why. Dennis dragged Carl out of the tub, where Carl remembered momentarily glancing at his own reflection in the bathroom mirror. He barely recognized his own face. He was mottled and red, his eyes were bulging out of the sockets, and a deep red mark was around his neck. Something was horribly wrong, but Carl didn't know what to do. Dennis claims to have given him CPR and mouth-to-mouth, but Carl doesn't recount this as well. And so, again, while I have no reason to believe Dennis lied, I also Mm -hmm. don't know how true that part is. Right, because he, at one point in one time, he mentions that he was drowning him, but then he resuscitated him. Yes. Like, that was, like, how he brought him back. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Yeah, no, he strangled him until he passed out. Then he dragged him into the bathroom and started drowning him. And then he brought him out of the tub. Right. And then he, re- he, he, he says that he gave him, like, CPR mm-hmm. and mouth-to-mouth. But Carl just says he woke up. Like, he doesn't remember any of that. So, mm-hmm. either way. He does remember, however, that Dennis left him off at a hospital. Right. So kind. Thanks, Dennis. Yeah. Carl told his family what had happened, and he made a police report, but since Carl couldn't remember where Dennis lived, and let's be honest, since he was young and gay, no further investigation was conducted at that time. Mm -hmm. 
Carl recounted everything on the stand, though it was incredibly difficult. He shook and his voice wobbled, and on more than one occasion, the judge had to give him breaks to compose himself. His testimony was incredibly impactful, and as terrible as the ordeal was, he most certainly helped put Dennis Nilsson away in the end. So, spoiler alert, he does go to jail. Uh, and, And Carl, as we say in the first half, did spend years and years battling depression and as a result of that, uh, alcoholism, and uh, eventually ended up drinking himself to death at 52 years old. So I just, that one just hurts me. Makes me so sad. I know. Because he got away, but like he could just never shake that off. And, and who could? That's awful. I know. It's so terrible. And in those days, there was no, no one to take care of your mental health, really. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but this is the early 80s. And I guess feeding into modern times, but once you have certain opinions in your head, sometimes you just plow forward. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm, I think he's the, such an awful tragedy. It makes me so sad. They all are, obviously. Right. Some, sometimes certain things will just hit you. Mm-hmm. Next, DCIJ took the stand and recounted Dennis's arrest and confession. He described him as calm and matter-of-fact in his delivery. He recalled the statements wherein Dennis said, quote, I have no tears for my victims, I have no tears for myself, nor those bereaved by my actions. Fuck you! DCIJ admitted it was unusual for anyone accused of such horrific crimes to offer up so much information so willingly. Following DCIJ's testimony, D.S. Chambers recited Dennis's formal confession to the court, and the testimony included graphic descriptions of the ritualistic and sexual acts Dennis performed with his victims' bodies, his various methods of storage of the bodies and body parts, dismemberment and disposal, and the problem's decomposition, particularly regarding colonies of maggots, afforded him. All of this took D.S. Chambers four hours. Oh, my gosh. In court. <laughs> like, they broke for the day. He came back the next morning and kept going. Oof. Mm-hmm. Jurors were obviously visibly shaken and sick to their stomachs. They looked at Dennis, terrified of the monster that could do these things, and he stared on at them completely indifferent. After this lengthy testimony, the prosecution included several exhibits into evidence. This included the cooking pot in which Dennis had boiled the heads of three of his victims killed at Cranley Gardens, the cutting board he had used to dissect John Howlett, and several rusted catering knives which had formerly belonged to his victim Martin Duffy. So not only did he use those knives for nefarious purposes, but he also let him rust. Let them rust. Because he's the worst! Such the worst. Such the worst. I don't know what that means. I don't know. (laughs) All of the superlative words. (laughs) Next, both the prosecution and defense brought in their own forensic psychology experts. Oh, well, the defense brought in two. First, the defense called in psychiatrist Dr. James McKeith, who testified that it it was his opinion that Dennis had experienced a lack of emotional development and therefore could not appropriately express any emotion other than anger, which is a real... Weird assertion. I don't know what can make you just angry, only angry. Right. Also, we talked about Dennis's childhood. He most certainly did not. He was weird. Yeah. But he, I mean, like. But he wasn't, he didn't have, like, crazy outbursts. No. He treated other humans as pieces of his fantasy because he had trouble separating fantasy from reality. Dr. McKeith also described Dennis's association between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal, stating that Dennis possessed narcissistic personality traits, which, yeah, mm-hmm. an impaired sense of identity and was able to depersonalize other people. Also, yes, I agree yeah. with all of that so far. 
Dennis explained all of that himself rather nicely, though, so please try telling us something we haven't already heard. Thank Correct. you. Dr. McKeith stated his conclusion was that Dennis displayed many signs of maladaptive behavior, the combination of which, in Dennis, turned out to be lethal. So he did make a distinction that he has these things, but these things combined with who he is is why he ended up killing people. Right. Which, okay, good on you for that. Yeah, so I don't think he had anger issues because he seemed kind of calm when he would be strangling them. It's almost like he was just doing his, I don't know, know, doing something nice for them almost. Yeah. (laughs) Dr. McKeith also said that these factors could be attributed to a, quote, unspecified personality disorder from which Dr. McKeith believed Dennis to be suffering. Unspecified. Okay. The prosecution asked him to try and narrow it down, please. And when pressed, Dr. McKeith said that he could not come to one conclusion, but he did believe that whatever it was was severe enough to reduce Dennis's conscious responsibility for his crimes. Well, not good enough, sir. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's where he d- d- does the, all those theories in. I feel like he did good work early on, and a lot of the things he said seemed to add up. And then he was like, well, also, he, he did it because of this. And I can't tell you what that was, but I'm telling you, it was there. Mm-hmm. No, you got to do better than that. Maybe he didn't want to do better than that. Maybe not. And maybe he was a hero for that. Mm-hmm. His unidentified personality disorder absolves him of his responsibility. Thank you, next. <laughs> the next psychiatrist to testify for the defense was Dr. Patrick Galwe. Sorry, I want to pronounce it wrong every time. <laughs> Galwe. I want to say Gawley, but it's Galwe. And he diagnosed Dennis with, quote, borderline false self as pseudonormal narcissistic personality disorder. with occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances that Dennis managed most of the time to keep at bay, which is a salad of serial killer buzzwords. To keep at bay. That's like in the description. Yeah. It's all of that. (laughs) The description is all all of those words. All bolded. Yep. (laughs) It is also basically diagnosing him with everything, which of course will never be totally untrue. If you mention everything he could have, the likelihood that he has one of those things is pretty good. Yeah. So... Galway stated that in episodic breakdowns, Dennis became predominantly schizoid, acting in an impulsive, violent, and sudden manner. Galway further added that someone suffering from these episodic breakdowns is most likely to disintegrate under circumstances of social isolation, which in Dennis's case would have been entirely self-imposed. He could have had as many friends as he wanted. He chose not to. Listen. I fully believe in psychology and psychiatry. I'm a science girl and mental health is real. However, that sounds like a lot of bullshit to me. (laughs) That sounds like as many big words as you could fit into a sentence to try and convince someone that you know more than them. They did it. (laughs) Did they? (laughs) You cannot say one man has a wide variety of mental disorders and their symptoms just kind of come out at certain times like a cuckoo clock and then disappear at others. He didn't have periodic breakdowns, he had highly targeted moments of violence. Right. Upon cross-examination, Prosecutor Alan Green, who I love, by the way, this guy's great, largely focused upon the degree of awareness that was shown by Dennis and his ability to make decisions. Galway did concede, Galway, sorry, or whatever, G-A-L-L-W-E-Y. Y'all can pronounce it however you want. He did concede that Dennis was intellectually aware of his actions. So in the end, he was like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) But he stressed that due to his personality disorder, which is 10 sentences long, Dennis did not appreciate the criminal nature of what he had done. 
which is a whole lot different than not knowing what he did was wrong. Right. Next up was the prosecution, and they were a lot more to the point. Paul Bowden testified as a rebuttal of the psychiatrists who, to, who the defense had called. Paul had conducted all 16 interviews of Dennis following his arrest, so he had clearly spent the most time with him. Bowden testified that while he found Dennis to be abnormal, which I think we can all agree he was, he thought that Dennis was highly manipulative and capable of forming, forming relationships. He just didn't. He just forced himself to objectify people instead. Paul Bowden said that it was his belief that Dennis exhibited no evidence of maladaptive behavior, and while he was certainly dangerous, he did not have a disorder that interfered with his ability to tell right from wrong or cause psychotic blackouts. In my, in my opinion, the defense really kind of went in and shot their shot because they had nowhere else to go. They tried, but I don't know that it was ever going to really work. If I was forced to guess what was wrong with Dennis, I would say that the first doctor was pretty close to right. He definitely had narcissistic personality disorder. He shows all the traits, all the traits, I mean, and it's explained very well. I would also venture to guess that he might have had something called antisocial personality disorder, which is a nicer way of putting that he was a sociopath, Mm -hmm. which is not a nice word, and I don't know how much we want to use it, but it is far more recognizable. People with antisocial personality disorder lack empathy. But intellectually, they do know right from wrong most of the time. They just don't care. Okay. So these are people who can murder people and have no feeling. They they just don't get feelings from other people at all. And they're like, yeah, I committed a crime, but I don't care that I did. Mm-hmm. And they're also, like, very convincing when they want to be one way or the other. So it, it, when he wanted to turn it on, he could be very, very, very charming. Yeah, that sounds like him. That's like if you watch... Most of us do. Let's be real. If you watch Sherlock, he always says that he's a highly functioning sociopath. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. Right. But this doesn't absolve them of their crimes. This is not like a, a ticket to freedom. It, it's just here's what might have been going on in his brain. Following the closing arguments of both the prosecution and the defense, the jury retired to consider the verdict on the 3rd of November, 1983. The following day, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder and one of attempted murder, with a unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder of Paul Nobbs. Judge Croom Johnson sentenced Dennis to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. Well, it's life, so... Yes. (laughs) That's what he got. Dennis was put in Wormwood Scrubs prison, which sounds like an insult. I know. (laughs) Let us please call all undesirables Wormwood Scrubs. (laughs) It sounds high class and yet awful at the same time. I love it so much. Such Wormwood Scrubs over there. (laughs) Awful. Dennis did, uh, did not appeal his sentence, though admitting afterwards that he knew exactly what he was doing all along and that the crown was probably right. Oh, God. Yeah, afterwards he's like, yeah, I knew what I was doing. (laughs) When people are sentenced to life, they nearly always appeal. Not appealing is nuts. Yeah. I've I've never read a case where the the guy was convicted and was just like, no, I'm not going to appeal that. Sometimes they appeal several times, and they could be the guiltiest people in the world, and they still appeal every time. So, okay. Prison was not a wholly quiet time for Dennis, though. And, Leslie, you can uh, give us a little bit about what Dennis did while he was in prison. Sure. So, while in prison, Dennis spent most of his time writing, painting, and translating books into Braille. Oh, I read that. Come Mm -hmm. on. 
He was considered a Category A prisoner, so he didn't get a cellmate, and he was kept pretty isolated from the other inmates. During his first year in prison, Dennis was slashed in the face with a razor by an inmate, Albert Moffat. Oh! Uh, Moffat claimed Dennis had tried to make sexual advances on him, and he was not having it. Good. So, don't have it. <laughs> Dennis needed 89 stitches. <gasps> so he has like a scar on his face. Oh, And then that shit. was before he went to uh, Wormwood. Wormwood yeah. scrubs. You yes, Wormwood scrub. Wormwood scrubs. Uh, Dennis really wanted to tell his story his way. Of course. Um, so he decided to write his own autobiography called The History of a Drowning Boy. And we'll also get into, um, I have some information about the book that did come out about him. He didn't so write it, though. He didn't write it. It was just a biography. Um, but so that book had come out and he was just like, I need to tell my story the way I want to tell it. Well, and I'm pretty sure that Britain has the same laws as the United States regarding criminals profiting off their stories. You can't. You can write it all you want, but you can't publish it and make money. You can't buy that book anywhere. Well, okay. So he um, wrote if about... If you can, I'm No, devastated. just listen. Okay. Just listen. <laughs> he wrote about half his story and submitted it for review because he did want to publish it. Of course he um, did. But the high courts rejected it. They would not allow it to be published and wanted him to stop writing. <laughs> <laughs> Knock it off! <laughs> yeah. The head of the prison wouldn't even let Dennis have the pages of his book back that he wrote. I love all of them. Mm-hmm. They're such badasses. So Dennis's lawyer, Allison Foster. Another lawyer. Another lawyer. uh, Tried to fight saying it was against his human rights because everything's against his human rights. Fucking his human rights. But no one cared enough. Thank God. Um, Dennis was always trying to fight for his rights in prison. Uh, back in which I'm I'm fine for fight for there are certain rights I think people need to have. But this guy is like off the wall. Do you want to be really sad for one second? Okay. In his interviews in later life, Carl Stodder found out that he did all that, and he was quoted as saying, "He's st- he won't stop campaigning for his human rights, but he never once considered my human rights." Yeah, that's yeah, that's why I don't give, I don't care any shits. Yeah, yeah. I, t- I agree because he did these things. Yeah, you g- be in yeah. jail. First of yes. all, you're not having that bad of a time in jail, and that other yeah. guy that slashed your face, you probably tried to touch his dick. So whatever. Right. So, Dennis was always, yeah, he was trying to always fight for his rights. Back in 2001, he fought for his basic human right to pornographic publications. Oh, that's right. He wanted his porn. <laughs> yeah. This, the prison kept denying him access to Vulcan, Vulcan, a gay porn magazine, as well as a number of other LBGT publications. A, uh, and I believe on some occasions they would um, allow him to have the magazine, but also they would just remove any of the pornographic I material. love that they just cut out the pictures of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> they cut out any of the good stuff and left in, like, the ads yeah. in the story. I think they did that sometimes, but I think mostly, like, I actually don't even think any of the prisoners were allowed to have porn there. No, that's a lot of effort, but it also yeah. feels, like, really mean and fun. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he filed a claim against the prison on the basis of two articles of the European Convention on Human Rights, Article 3, which protests, protects against inhumane or degrading treatment of prisoners, and Article 14, which protects against discrimination. He failed here, too. Like, everybody was like, you didn't. Yeah, porn is not a basic right. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. And I'm all for, like, your sexuality being important and stuff like that, but you can masturbate to images you conjure up in your own mind. So we're just not. We're just you're not allowed no. to. 
Um, his lawyers, so they were able to prove that the uh, prohibition of pornography was done so in a discriminatory way. Can you imagine being his lawyer and being like, mm, my client wants his porn? <laughs> be the I most know. awful shit-eating job to have to I do. Know, but if you're getting paid, you I know. mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah. It makes great dinner talk. <laughs> you have to go home and be like, I can't. Yeah. I can't talk about my day. <laughs> So besides that stuff, um, he also had been talking to, uh, at the very beginning when he got picked up before he even went to trial, um, Dennis was talking to a uh, writer, okay, Brian Masters. Yes. Um, Brian Masters will go on to write a book about uh, Dennis called Killing for Company, the story of a man addicted to murder. Mm. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about Brian Masters first and then their relationship. Okay. So um, I get most of this from a article in the Telegraph UK, mm. an article by Mick Brown. So uh, Brian Masters was born in 1939. He is a British writer best known for his biographies of mass murders. But before Masters wrote about mass murders, he worked as a translator and wrote books on French writers in the British uh, aristocracy. Ooh. Very fancy. He learned of Dennis's case, like everyone else, the newspaper. He was disgusted and intrigued. He was curious of the psychology of a man who would commit these crimes. Us too, dude. Yeah, for real. (laughs) Masters himself is gay. He says, quote, When I read about all the victims being male, and in those days nobody spoke openly about these things, I thought, my goodness, somebody is going to write about this, but it mustn't be somebody who doesn't know what he's talking about. I could at least understand what it's like to live like that. I thought that somebody who is responsible ought to deal with it. Maybe it's me. And lo. And lo. It was. (laughs) So he wrote to Dennis in prison about wanting to write a book, but Dennis and Dennis said yes. And three weeks later, Masters went to visit. So this was when before he got to Wormwood Scrubs. <laughs> I love them. Right away, Masters realized uh, Dennis thought he was controlling the situation and could manipulate Masters. But Masters claims he saw right through this right away. He was like, this guy's a narcissist. I'm just gonna like good for him. Kind of maybe let him think he's controlling, but. I'm really controlling the narrative That's here. very smart. Master strongly felt that getting to know Dennis's childhood and bringing up um, and his bring, bringing up could shed some light on Dennis's crimes. Masters believed that Dennis was traumatized at the age of six uh, after seeing his grandfather's corpse and being told that he was just sleeping. Um, and also the fact that his grandfather had drowned, you know, so obviously we've, we have seen those so connections. Much drowning. He speculates that the loss of his father figure and friend and his curiosity of what it means to be dead would lead Dennis on this dark path. Dennis, when talking about one of his victims, says, quote, I would hold him close often and think that he would had never been so appreciated in his life before. After a week, I stuck him under the floor. In his life? Yeah. He was, there was no life. He was dead. I know. I know. Master's response to this was, he's talking about himself. It's diversion. It's a diversion of subject. He is putting himself in that person's place. He wants to be that person. His grandfather drowned, and he was always identifying with that exit from life and with, with a time he had been cared for and looked after. Uh, Master's didn't like Dennis at all. 
he's just like good. People, people felt that he did, especially the uh, officers were like kind of nervous about the fact that there was this writer talking right. to him during but the he investigation. Had to play that card. Still. Yeah. But he was like, don't get me wrong, like I do not like him. I'm not finding any empathy here. Okay. Uh, but he continued his relationship with him after he finished the book because he felt a moral obligation. It felt wrong to have gotten so much from him and then just forget about him. Uh, he was stuck feeling compassion for the person who had been smothered inside him. So in my head, I'm like, he's like picturing the six-year-old boy. Like, okay. Like Masters had gotten into his psychology and was just like, that's where he's stuck. Okay. After 10 years of visits, Dennis took Masters off the visiting list because he got pissed after hearing Masters say in an interview that he was very similar to Jeffrey Dahmer. He's so similar to Jeffrey Dahmer. And I don't know if he was pissed that he was being compared to someone or if it was because that someone because that someone was American. I don't know. Like uh, he just was he was just mad. But Masters I don't know. Jeff was super popular and good looking. There's worse people, yeah. worse murderers. And he was writing be. a book about him too. Oh, okay. So he was probably just feeling like, I'm not your number one man. I think he was jealous because he was not as good looking. Yeah. But they haven't <laughs> spoken since. Well, they well, they did not now. I know, but um, oh, right. but yeah, they like didn't speak there. the rest of the time. Um, and yeah, that was uh, that that was that. Oh <laughs> well, Brian Masters. Oh, Brian Masters. So you can go pick up his book. What's it called again? Killing for Company. Killing for Company. Yeah. Okay, you can pick up Brian Masters's book, and if you want to read more, it's a, a resource that a lot of people use when talking about this case. And and a lot of the articles and, and stuff that I have read refer back to it. Mm-hmm. Again, before we do a podcast, a lot of times I will avoid things that have been written by crime writers or um, like the miniseries about him because they have to be interesting. They have to be. So sometimes it's their little tiny things are tinkered with to make sure that they're more interesting. Um, and maybe Brian Masters didn't do that. I don't know. He might have been completely, totally factual, but I kind of... Before going in, I wanted to be like, all right, I'm just reading facts. That's all. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like he probably knew more than anybody else, which, whew, what a task. Good for him. I know. I, I am interested to read the book because yeah. I feel like there's so much that I know about it now. I could probably skim through it real fast. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe there's an um, audio version. I tried. There it isn't. No. Well, on May 10th, 2018, Dennis was taken from Full Sutton Prison, where he was currently serving his time. So a lot of time prisoners are bounced around from prison to prison to serve their sentences. Um, he was taken to York Hospital after complaining of severe stomach pains. He was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which was repaired, although he subsequently suffered a blood clot as a complication of the surgery. Dennis died on May 10th. His medical cause of death was given as a pulmonary embolism and retroperitoneal hemorrhage linked to the ruptured aneurysm. A report from the prisons and probation ombudsman stated that Dennis had been left, quote, deteriorating for two and a half hours after rejecting the opportunity to be seen for longer in the healthcare wing. He died in excruciating pain. In a pool of his own waste. Which might have been too good for him, but it'll do. (laughs) That'll do, pig. That'll That'll do. do. (laughs) (laughs) And that is all of Dennis Nelson. My gosh. Just the fact that he 
just the the end of his life is says everything about him. Oh yeah, everything. He just the fact that he refused, like he was in the hospital for something, and then he was in excruciating pain. He was like, "No, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go to a doctor. Yeah, and deal with this. Might just so stubborn." Such an yeah, ass. Yeah, he had a blood clot. He must have been in so much pain. And probably a nuisance to everyone around him. Oh, I'm sure. They're just like, dude, just go see somebody and get out of here and stop complaining. He didn't like quietly waste away. I'm no. sure he was making noise. And just laying in his own feces. Oh, yeah. He just like shit himself and then died. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And normally I wouldn't laugh at something so awful, but it really did happen to an awful human being. It so did, yeah. Totally all right. Toast. Toast, yes. Oh, my. Oh, my God. Every victim possible. Well, I think Brian Masters. Brian Masters. Did a lot of legwork and, and really went into this case hard. He did. He was even, um, I think, according to the book. So, unfortunately, I did not get to read the book before this. Um, I had watched this documentary on, I think it's on Sundance um, or, like, if you have – the documentary or the miniseries? Sorry, yeah, it's a miniseries. Um, there is a documentary yes. that is a um like a partner to it that mm-hmm. is it is narrated by David Tennant, and yeah. I watched that, and that is great for information. Yes, yeah, so, and I can't wait to watch this miniseries because I avoided it until now. Yeah, so the miniseries is called Des, and it has David Tennant in it, and ruin your life. Sorry, yeah, and it's mostly based off of Brian Masters' book. That's right. where they get a lot of that from. So there is a lot of truth to it there is drama dramatization yeah there has um, to be i don't judge that ever but it's entertainment all the people now. like even the police officers and investigators like they're pretty happy with it too anyway yeah, if, but if you watch the companion documentary they have interviews with the police officers they have brian masters is in it they have interviews with carl stotter's um sister they like mm-hmm. all of these people that we talk about w- appear in the documentary too so you can hear a lot of the words right from their mouth right so I'm going to toast, I think, did we, we toasted Carl's daughter last week, I think. Yep. So we will toast to Brian Masters okay. and to those British police officers who let yeah. him just lay naked and not care. Mm-hmm. The best parents ever. Best parents, yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously all of his victims. Um, so, so cheers to all of them. Cheers. And last week, um, I put it up late. I'm very sorry. But I did put up a full photo suite of pictures of this case. I am going to post a second one this week that's just pictures of his victims. Okay. I didn't even want to put them in the same gallery, to be perfectly honest. I'd rather give them their own place. Um, But you can see pictures of the crime scene and pictures of Dennis and pictures of Dino Rod. Yeah. Because I got a picture of Dino Rod. I felt like we really needed one and how we imagined we'd like Dino Rod to be. We need a cape on that. <laughs> we do. Oh, <laughs> Chris, Photoshop is a cape too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We love our fiends. Do we have anybody else we need to toast this week? Not this week. Nobody else. Okay. <laughs> the so, week's not over yet. <laughs> that's true. It's not. And if we were offered dinner and drinks by a charming man we met in a bar and life hadn't been kind to us in some time, we, we would, would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. 
and join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Wormwood Scrubs, you Wormwood Scrub.